So we are in the middle of our Advent series here, waiting on Christmas. And it's not a waiting like a rolling your fingers on the desk, your hands down, waiting kind of thing. Waiting here, what is meant is to remain in, to keep with, to walk with, to tarry with, to not deviate from the Lord, no matter what circumstances we might be going through. And we could be going through lots of circumstances. We could be going through mountaintop experiences. I get this from Psalm 23, mountains or in valleys that we could go through. But either way, whether it be soaring or whether it be in the valley, the Lord is always with us. And therefore, the call upon our lives is to wait on him in full anticipation and full assurance of hope that he's going to do what he said he is going to do. And Christmas is a great time to do that because it is the inauguration. I'll use that word again. The inauguration of God's redemptive plan. It's kind of like the domino piece that gets pushed and to have everything kind of fall into place, standing on the full foundation of the Old Testament, all the prophecies and all the things that was there to help equip the people of God. Now, this child comes in a manger, this prophesied child, and we kick off the, the, um, the, really the roller coaster of events that bring us to the full redemption, God's plan to save his people, not only the Israel people, but the entire world, those who would bow a knee and humble we say that Jesus is their Lord and Savior. And so that's kind of where that waiting comes from. And that's what we're doing, kind of marching through. And I, I matched it up to the, to the words. And so far, we've already talked about hope. Lisa Yoder reminded us of what hope means in terms of it is an expectation. It's not a wish. Yes, or yesterday, last Sunday, we talked about peace, the shalom that we have with the Lord, that wholeness of relationship, that it's a wish that we would have upon everybody, that they would experience that whole relationship with the Lord, that repar rep the repaired brokenness that we have with him that brings peace, peace on whom his favor rests, we said during our, um, our, um, our confession of sin and assurance of pardon. And today it is joy, joy to the world. The pink candle, the one that Jerry, our former pastor, used to call the Pepnabismal candle. So there you are. That's where we're at. Everyone all caught up. Okay. Sorry. Get rid of that cough drop. How many of you have ever been to uh, New York? Anyone New Yorkers in here? Okay. Good job. New York City, more importantly. Seen the Rockefeller Center? Have you seen the tree? Right. You go to New York City, you got to go on Christmas. Christmas is the best time to go to New York City. Absolutely the best time to see all the things, all the sights, everything that they really go out, go out for it. Love going to New York. I um, used to go with my uh, aunt and uncle, and they would always bring me to, um, to different Broadway shows and things like that. How many of you ever seen a Broadway show? Raise your hand. Very good. It's a thing to watch. It's a thing to behold. It's very, very good. I'm going to reference one here this morning, one that I have not seen in New York, so that whole New York stuff is just all free information. But the one that, um, that I really, really enjoy... Uh, they made a movie of it. I would love to see it live on stage. It is so intricate. It is so um, masterfully woven together. It is uh, Into the Woods. Anyone ever seen Into the Woods by Stephen Sondheim? Raise your hand up high if you've seen it. Okay, so this, uh, it's relatively unknown. Into the Woods is basically a retelling of various, um, I don't know what we call them, nursery rhyme characters maybe? 
uh, Little Red Riding Hood and, and things like that. And, and they, they set these people off, these characters off on an adventure. Um, what happens in the beginning of the, of the play, you, you get introduced to a baker and his wife uh, who can't have children. And there is a witch, and she's obviously the foil. She's the, the evil one. And we come to find out that she's the one that placed the curse on this family. Because years and years and years ago, the baker's dad stole from her garden, stole beans, magic beans from her garden. Uh, and so she gets upset by that and curses, I mean, logically so, her, them to be barren because of that. Um, and so we, we get introduced to that, and they get sent on this adventure, the baker and his wife and various others, to, to go into the woods and to find different things to help them undo this, this curse. Now, the thing about the woods, you get the baker and his wife, they get this song that they sing, it's called It Takes Two, and the refrain of this song is they discover that each other, they, they're different in the woods. The baker has more confidence. He's thriving. He's taking charge. And the baker sees with his wife that she's actually valuable, <laughs> and her opinion is worth listening to, and that, she, uh, that she's been helping him, and, and they realize that together they make a really good partnership. And it's this whole idea that in the woods they discover this. Now, at the end of this play, at the end of this musical, we also realize that the woods is also a great place not only for them to thrive and to grow and to become better, but it's also a place that reveals their inner character flaws, the, the things that, that make them not likable people, not people in whom you would, you would cheer on. And at the end, this great twist, just to give the story away, um, spoiler alert, you begin to sympathize with the witch because you realize that nobody in this forest is good at all. Everyone's got some is issues that they're dealing with. Now, why do I bring this up? The wilderness in Scripture is also present. Scripture has the wilderness, the forest. The uh, Israelites were led out of Egypt and into the forest. And the wilderness in, the, in Scriptures, in, in, in the Bible, also needs to be seen uh, in the following ways. That it is an opportunity to God, for God's people to grow stronger in the Lord as they wait on Him. He leads them into the wilderness, and they need to rely on him. It's where, but it's where they get the Ten Commandments. It's where they get uh, all the things that God lays down for them. But it's also the place where it reveals their inner, their inner sinfulness. Because just as much as God has delivered them into the wilderness and continues to provide for them, they grumble at every turn. There's nothing to eat. The water's too bitter. Why can't we have meat? Let's go back to Egypt. I mean, that's the whole thing through the entire Old Testament with them. They grumble and they complain because they want to go back to what they knew. It's better for us to be slaves in Egypt than to be here where you have led us out. The wilderness is an opportunity for them to grow and rely on God. It is also a place where it reveals their inner struggle. And they get the opportunity to either keep with the Lord and be blessed or to break from him and be cursed. Now, Jesus also was led into the wilderness. This is review. And the same thing is happening. The devil begins to tempt the Lord. And what the devil is doing is he's looking, searching for some character flaw to exploit. 
I'll exploit him on his desire to be the Lord of the, of the universe. I'll exploit him on his, on his reliance to God the Father. I'll try to find something. But Jesus continually, boldly recites scripture back to the devil until he tells the devil to be gone from him and flee from him. And he doesn't give in. In the wilderness, Jesus grows stronger and stronger in his zeal for God and his purpose and mission for life. So then that begs the next question. What in the world does this have to do with joy? Today, we're going to look at John the Baptist and his family. We're going to look at the angel annunciation over his family, beginning with his dad, Zechariah, followed by his mom, Elizabeth, and then finally him, who, let's give the story away, spoil alert, John the Baptist is the voice who cries in the wilderness to make way for the coming of the Lord. We will see that John the Baptist resides in the wilderness for a purpose and for a mission that he has been divinely set apart to fulfill. And by some miracle, we'll tie all of this together in waiting on Jesus, waiting on Christmas, and how this overflows our joy-filled hearts with joy. You ready for this to rock and roll? Let me see excited faces. Let's do it. Okay. So, in order to get started, I've preached on joy here several times. And every time I do it, I try to put together a, um, a definition for joy. And I feel like every time I put a definition for joy together, I nuance it. I add something. There's another discovery, another thing that I didn't really account for. Now, you have heard it's a reverberating drum when anyone preaches on joy. They always take a moment to say, joy is not happiness, you silly people, and to not, to, to not tie the two things together. We have preached that here. We have, we have said to you that happiness is a variable. It is tied to things that can vary. If this happens, then I'll be happy. If I get the job, I'll be happy. If I get my, the wife that I would like or the husband that I would like, I would be happy. If I have kids, I'll be happy. If my kids grow up in mind and, and become great people, I'll be happy. And it's tied to things that are really out of your control. Because anyone who has ever had kids knows that that's <laughs> not going to happen always. And so you understand that you can't tie your happiness to that. You can't even tie your happiness to a person because the variable that's within us is that we will disappoint you, we will disappoint each other, and one day we're going to die. That's, that's in some ways a variable. I can't tie my happiness to Carrie or my kids or vice versa. I can be happy with them, but I can't tie it to that because I know that in this world life is fleeting. And God forbid, one, something could happen. And if that is all tied up in that thing, then, then I'm setting, we're setting ourselves up for a bit of a disaster, a crash in some ways. Joy, feelings of joy, are not tied to variables, but are founded and spring forth from our remembrance, realization, and resting or waiting on God. Say that with me. The remembrance, realization, and resting and waiting on God. That's where joy feelings tie themselves to. Resting and waiting on God, the grace that we have received from Jesus Christ, which cannot be taken away. Our grace in which we have received from Jesus is not a variable. Remain in me and I in you, he says. 
cannot be taken away. Nothing will separate us from the Lord. And so if we tie our feelings to joy on that, he remains with us through, again, mountaintops and valleys as we experience this broken world. So going a little further, I did a word study on joy. The Greek word for joy uh, comes from the word car, and you put this all things together, and it means in some ways the feeling we experience when we recognize grace, when our hearts recognize, remember, recalls the grace in which we have received. And likewise, then, when you rejoice, you're rejoicing in not only experiencing that and remembering that, but also seeing it in other people, more importantly, seeing them come to that realization and that remembrance of the grace in which they have been received by Jesus Christ, that our minds and our hearts stand in alignment with that grace, remembering the divine favor that we have in Jesus Christ who chose us and called us. And that we wear the family emblem of the house of the Lord, which ought not to bring only overwhelming joy, but a gladness and a full satis uh, satisfaction in Christ that we would want for nothing in this world because of what we have in him. That is what is the definition of where this joy comes from. And that is why when people go through such hardships and such uh, devastating news that when you see them sometimes, they're able to continue through it and have a bit of an attitude shift or change in perspective. It's because their hearts are remembering that above all else, my joy, my fulfillment, my purpose in life is wrapped up into the grace that I've received from Christ. That right there is good news. We could stop the message right here if you'd like because that is, that's the end game. To be able to go through life with eyes and a heart that continually recognizes the grace we have received in Christ. And to share that with other people so that they can, we can rejoice together in that. Okay, so then how does this then tie into John the Baptist? Joy is a very, very big deal. It's all over scriptures. It's definitely tied in the coming of the Lord on Christmas Day. The angels say to the shepherds, good news, a great joy. It's not only for Israel, but for the entire world. But where does this come in with John the Baptist? Well, here's the thing. We know, you and I in this room know, that Jesus coming as a baby was just the beginning. And he has a whole life and ministry ahead. There's the cross. There's the resurrection there's Pentecost, there's, there's, there's so many things that still have to come yet, and here we sit, still in the wilderness, still in the woods, as we wait for the coming of the Messiah the second time. And so John the Baptist plays a really critical role, not only what he has been set up to do, but a call for action for ourselves as well. And we'll see how this overflows ourselves with joy. Open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, page 1063. Luke chapter 1, page 1063. I want to read to you and kind of point out some things. Now, we, we've got this, if you've ever read Luke chapter 1, oh, 1016, ha, 
1063 is the next one. Page 1016, excuse me. If you've ever read through the Gospel of Luke, the narratives of, of basically the nativity, sometimes you may skip ahead and just go to Mary's angel visitation. It's the one that we always hear. Uh, but, but there was a visitation before, and that's with Zechariah, this man named Zechariah, who's John the Baptist's dad, and for Elizabeth. And it's, you can't get to Mary's before going through this, because Luke wants us to see something here and what God is doing and bringing about his plan of redemption for the world. Let's look. So John the Baptist, uh, chapter 5. Now in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of uh, Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. This right here is Luke doing something very much on purpose. He's not fabricating the story in any way, but wants us to see that right here in the beginning, as we set up for the coming of the Lord, we got to go all the way back to the very, very beginning in the Old Testament. He is setting Zechariah and Elizabeth up to very much mirror what happened with Abraham and Sarah. You all remember Abraham and Sarah, right? Abraham and Sarah, they're old. God finds Abraham to be a man of, uh, that, that's going to walk with him, all the things, and he, he gives them a promise, a covenant that says that your wife, Sarah, who is barren, you both are old, you're going to have a baby, and through that baby, thousands, uh, numerous as the stars, your children will, will be. We'll set up my people through that. So here, at the start of the new covenant that's about to happen, we get a call back to Abraham and Sarah with Elizabeth and Zechariah. And we find that they were both righteous before God and that they were blameless and walking with him following the Ten Commandments. That doesn't mean that they were without sin. There's an understanding in, 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 in the Old Testament that you have sins that you are cognizant of and sins that you're not cognizant of. I think he's trying to set them up that they very faithfully tried to walk every day of their lives blameless before God, waiting on him, keeping with him, and keeping his commandments. Now, why is that a special thing? Because as we read on, they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Again, calling us back to Abraham and Sarah. But the th significant thing here about Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth is Zechariah is a priest. And Elizabeth comes from a priestly line. They're very priestly. And, and that would mean that Elizabeth being barren and not able to have a child is a little problematic. Because that would mean that she or he may have done something to cause such, such a lack of blessing. To not be able to have a child like that. So you can imagine, I mean the scriptures don't tell us that. That's just stuff that we know <coughs> from, from just the way the cultures work and things. I mean, their people may have been very kind to them, but it's not too far-fetched to think that they probably had to answer a few questions here and then. It's like, oh, you're not pregnant yet. <laughs> that's interesting. And, and anyone that's in this room who's ever struggled with infertility would know that those questions are like daggers to your heart when that is happening. 
And yet here they are, they're, 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 both, they're from a priestly line, and, and Zechariah is actively working as a priest. Now, while he was serving, verse 8, as a priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of people were praying outside the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing to the right side of the altar. Important. This angel of the Lord we know is going to be Gabriel. He's standing on the right side. He's standing in Jesus' spot. He's standing in the spot where Jesus will ascend and sit on the right hand of the side of the Father. And that's to say that what Gabriel's about to announce and to say are the very words from God. You, Zechariah, who are devout and, and holy, should take these as, as written law. Like, you know, take this to the bank. You should have no problem with what I'm saying. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, just like Mary was troubled and with fear when she saw her angel. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Now, remember, he's going into the temple to offer prayers for the people. But the prayer that, he, that Gabriel was saying has been heard is not so much the prayers for the people. It's the inner prayer that comes from Zechariah in wanting to have a child. Your prayers have been heard, the angel says. For your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have, here it is, joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. And he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. The angel sets up some great profound things. He promises to John the Baptist and his wife that they are going to have joy from the Son. They are going to recognize God's grace. They are going to recognize God's intervention for their people. The time is now, and somehow your son is going to be a part of it for the whole world to realize that God has not forgotten them and that God is coming to save them as a people. That's all. That's amazing. But then goes one step further, and I, this is the first time I saw this, that, that John the Baptist will be filled with the Holy Spirit before he's even born. And I looked at that, I'm like, oh my goodness. <coughs> he's being set up not only to be a forerunner to Christ, but he is the prequel to the apostles at Pentecost. The apostles at Pentecost were filled with the Holy Spirit. And what were they charged to do? To be what? Witnesses. Thank you. Stu's the only one that has listened to all these sermons through Acts. Good job, Stu. An extra crown or jewel in your crown. The apostles were filled with the Holy Spirit and they were set up to be witnesses to the good news. To turn the hearts of the Israel people to believe, repent, and follow Jesus Christ. And here now, John the Baptist, before any of that happens, an angel is saying to his dad, he's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. To do what? To be a witness, a herald of joy, of the grace that is to come. 
before even the resurrection, before the crucifixion, before any of that is in view, he's going to grow up and be out there and trying to turn as many hearts as he can to this new, new thing that's happening. Verse 16, he will turn many children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah, which ties back to other prophecies, to turn the hearts of the fathers to children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, and to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. If you were to jump to the gospel of John chapter 1, we now see him fully grown, John the Baptist. And look what he says here on page 1053. This is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites to Jerusalem to ask him. Now, John has now been working in the wilderness. He's eating locusts. He's, he's dressed weird. Uh, he's, he's, all, he's not someone that you would invite to a party, nonetheless. But he positions himself very uniquely so in the wilderness. And he's gathering a following and he's turning hearts, which blows my mind because it's before anything even happens. But now here in the Gospel of John where we're reading his testimony, Jesus is fully grown. He's about to start his ministry. And John, the, the Gospel writer John, who is not John the Baptist, don't get confused. The Gospel writer John is recording what John the Baptist is saying about this, this Jesus, this Messiah. This is the testimony of John the Baptist. When the Levites and the priests came to ask him, they said, who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. It's the greatest human revelation ever in the Bible. I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, nope, I'm not. Are you a prophet? And he answered, no. And so they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? Because he's been baptizing people. He's causing a ruckus. <coughs> and he said, I am the voice of one carrying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. And they asked him, then why are you baptizing? If you're neither Christ nor Elijah or the prophet, what are you doing? You're being weird. And John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, and he comes, after me comes a man who ranks before me. Because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. So we know that John, after this prophecy from these angels, we know that he goes on to live into his promise, which is to be this great revealer, this voice in the wilderness where there's lots of confusion where people don't understand what's going on. That's really what's going on. When you look at wilderness, it it's a, could be confusion as well. No one really knowing the answers. And, and he's there in that liminal space calling out the good news of Jesus because he's been filled with the Holy Spirit and understands the grace in which they are going to receive. 
Now, as we look at John the Baptist and this powerful ministry, this prequel to the apostles, this time where he is bringing everyone in to try to know who Jesus is, we now have to look at it with, what does that mean for us here now? And I saw a great parallel between what John the Baptist was called to do and what we have been called to do as believers in Christ. We are the John the Baptist of this time period. Each one of you in here are John the Baptist. Look to your left and your right and say, let's eat locusts and drink honey today. Okay, so that you are the John the Baptist. We all are. Why is that? Because we know, now that we have studied Acts, that if we profess a faith in Jesus Christ, and we are chosen and called by him, he sends to us his Holy Spirit, and where does his Holy Spirit reside? In us. There is a constant channel of remembrance. There is a constant channel of conviction of the grace in which you have received. You just need to listen to it. And that constant channel from the Holy Spirit who says you've been divinely favored and you have received the grace from Christ, that constant channel should burn inside of you to not only rejoice in that, I say again, rejoice, but to then share that with other folks, to be the voice in this wilderness time of confusion that there is a path that leads to Christ and he wants you to follow it. Why do we forget that? I think, I think um, for some of us, it's easy for us to remember the grace in which we have received. And it's easy for us to be overwhelmed with joy in that, in that Jesus called us. But somewhere there is a break between that and then now being convicted to share that with someone. I don't know if it's our shame. I don't know if it's our pride. I don't know what it is. And me too. I'm not just convicting you. There's, there's times where I've shied away from a conversation. Why? They know I'm a pastor. Of course I'm going to say something Jesus-y. <laughs> but there's something that gets in the way for some reason. And so as we look at joy, in the midst of a world that's broken, in the midst of the wilderness that we find ourselves in, Please remember this. Let us always remember the joy and the grace that we have received in Jesus Christ. May we never, ever forget that he has called you by name and has chosen you and has placed his seal upon you and has called you sons and daughters of the Most High. Don't, don't ever forget that. And don't ever, ever forget that the freedom that we have received in the grace of Christ that brings us joy that freedom needs to be shared with more and more folks so that they too can bound up with, dance with joy in knowing that Christ has called even them. So this Advent season as you go, let your hearts be overflowed with joy. Being the John the Baptist of our time to make way for the Lord and prepare people to see him when he comes again. Let's pray. Gracious Lord Jesus, we thank you again for, oh, your many blessings. And that's such a simple story of profound significance. A visitation from an angel to Zechariah who says, your son is going to be a part of this. He's not going to be the one. 
But he's going to be a part of it. And how they, how they express such great joy to be even included in the, re, the redemption acts of your hand. Lord, let us be filled with joy as we see that we are being invited to be included in this great act of redemption. Not to be the person who brings it about, but to be partners and participants. To point others to Christ and to make preparations for the way for folks to follow him. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.